Even though the title of this episode is called Conclusions Part 1, this season of Breaking the Digital Spell is far from over. We will do a similar episode like this at the end of the season when we draw more conclusions based off the upcoming episodes dealing with the consequences of the internet. I think we are at a point, though, where we can start drawing some big conclusions based off of what we've already covered so far. So if you're a new listener to the podcast and haven't listened to the previous episodes, there's nothing stopping you from listening to this one without listening to the others, but you'll definitely get more out of this episode if you listen to those other episodes beforehand. We are going to look at three significant conclusions in this episode, all of which I think are true conclusions that can be made well before the social media and smartphone error, and I think are conclusions that get even more apparent as we move into these upcoming episodes dealing with social media, smartphones, streaming, the modern technology and media that we live with now. But before we dive into these three conclusions, I want to make a couple of things clear up front. First of all, I am going to tailor my specific conclusions to conservative American evangelicalism because it's the camp I grew up in and, for better or worse, is still the camp I remain in. Much of what I have to say here can apply to other corners of American Christianity, but because I have little to no experience in those corners, I'm going to limit myself to the world that I know which also happens to be one of, if not the largest block of Christians in America. Second, I'm going to offer some counter-arguments to what I'm saying at the end of the episode, because while I think these conclusions I'm about to outline are true, I also think that my biases are worth examining as well, and so I'm going to try the best I can to do that to myself at the end. Now, with all that being said, let's dive in to these three main conclusions. The first two conclusions are lesser conclusions, but they build into the third one. The first conclusion is that American evangelicalism's default response to modern technology and media has been one of unchecked technological optimism. In episode two, we looked at the three common responses to new technology and media, which we called technological optimism, technological pessimism, and technological ambiguity. To briefly recap, technological optimism puts a greater emphasis on the positive changes technology and media bring. Technological pessimism does the opposite, and technological ambiguity puts the emphasis on the context that the technology and media is used in to determine whether or not that technology or media is good or bad. In covering the advents of television and the internet, I don't think it's controversial to say that the default response to modern technology and media by American evangelicalism has been one of unchecked technological optimism. Now, I use that word unchecked deliberately. It's not as though American evangelicalism as a whole wrestled with new technology and media and time and time again came to hold an optimistic response. What I'm trying to say is that I think it's safe to say that American evangelicalism didn't wrestle with new technology and media and their consequences or usefulness at all. The reason they didn't was because of a philosophical view that undergirded the culture of American evangelicalism, and in many ways it guaranteed in advance this unchecked optimistic response to new technology and media. And this philosophical view is known as utilitarianism. Utilitarianism, for our purposes here, will be defined as something's value and or worth is tied solely to that thing's output. 
In other words, utilitarianism grounds value and worth on conditional variables, and those variables are tied to production, output, effectiveness, efficiency, any criteria that can be measured and tracked. If worker A makes five sales a week and worker B makes fifty sales a week, a utilitarian view would say that worker B is inherently more valuable than worker A, regardless. Of whether or not worker B made those fifty sales honestly, ethically, or professionally, worker A might have been ethically and professionally upstanding and fully honest in his dealings that earned him those five sales, and worker B might have been shady or manipulative or dishonest in how he achieved those fifty sales. But that doesn't matter. What matters is that worker B made significantly more sales than his counterpart, and thus worker B is more valuable than worker A. The ends justify the means to get the greatest output possible. The son of the late theologian Francis Schaeffer, also known as Frank Schaeffer, wrote an extremely underrated book in the early '80s called "Addicted to Mediocrity." And his thesis was that a utilitarian view of the arts and creativity had thoroughly ravaged the Christian understanding of creativity and beauty. And while I doubt that he would vouch for the contents of that book today, it's still a phenomenally relevant text, even 30 years after it was published. This is a lengthy quote, but listen to the way that he describes utilitarianism and how it has manifested itself in the church, and ask yourself if anything he says here rings a bell. So the tree which once had value, not least of which was its beauty, its shimmering leaves, the dappled shades it cast upon the mossy ground beneath, now only had value because of how many cubic feet of paper could be produced from it. So even man was measured by what he could achieve, produce, earn, contribute, and so on. Not only that, all man's attributes, talents, and endeavors had to be justified in some utilitarian way. No longer was it good enough to say that some human attribute was a God-given gift which should be freely enjoyed and given. Now those gifts had to translate themselves into utilitarian usefulness. Either they had to contribute monetarily or in some other way to society. They had to become propaganda tools, advertising tools, or monetary earning tools to be considered useful and therefore tolerated by the church. Unfortunately, the church itself was infiltrated by this view. The view was translated into religious terms. Now, everything anyone did had to measure up somehow in utilitarian terms in the church. It had to be useful to the onward march of the church. It had to help in efforts, in its programs, in church growth emphasis week, or whatever. This would be bad enough by itself. To make it worse, whatever thing had to measure up to as being useful toward was this false view of spirituality, this shriveled, truncated, narrow view, which selected a few things arbitrarily and called them the Christian life, the walk with the Lord, my Christian growth, witnessing, or whatever. This was all that remained of the full Christian life we were redeemed to, and that these sad standards were used to measure all Christian endeavor for its utilitarian usefulness to the church, left many things in very deep water. To translate this back to technology and media, the reason why I say that American evangelicalism's default response to new technology and media was one of unchecked optimism was because of the utilitarian implications these new technology and media brought with them. 
If you'll recall in the fifth episode of this season, the late Reverend Billy Graham believed that in a single telecast, he preached to more people than Christ did in his entire lifetime. Now, any conclusions about the possible side effects of television, side effects that might change the message as it's conveyed in the medium, like the ones Neil Postman raises in his book Amusing Ourselves to Death, those side effects and concerns were irrelevant because, in Reverend Graham's words, television is the most powerful tool of communication ever devised by man. Its potential to reach millions by default overrode any consideration as to what it was that was reaching those millions. The ends justified the means. This would be true of American evangelicalism's general attitude towards the internet and nearly everything that has come from the internet as well. These new mediums open the door to reach people with the message of the gospel, and while those mediums did overcome some legitimate obstacles to evangelism or ministry— they would also introduce new obstacles that we are dealing with today, chief among them being the consumerism among American evangelicals when it comes to their relationship with the church as a whole. One of the reasons I mentioned this conclusion first is because I think that so long as this remains true, every other conclusion we could make, both in this episode and later on, is ultimately going to stem from this one. Given some of the conversations that I've seen take place about the use of VR technology in the church, and spoiler alert, I don't think it has a place, I think it's safe to say that this unchecked technological optimism is perhaps now more a reality than it was 20 years ago, simply due to the fact that the internet now pervades every aspect of our lives. And yes, there is some pushback coming from some corners of evangelicalism, but they're in the minority. The default response hasn't changed, nor has the idea that whatever we can use in the name of proclaiming the gospel is automatically fair game. As a social media manager, part of my job is to keep my ear to the ground on what is going on in the social media world and anything that might be relevant to the use for the church that I work for. And there are quite a few Christian thought leaders in that sphere who I believe are passionate about Jesus Christ and love the church, but who are quick to immediately embrace anything and everything new that comes out in the social media industry. The common theme is that if something is going on in the social media world, the church must get in on it. Even if it's something as ridiculous as spending a 40-hour work week to flood Vine 2 with Christian Vines when Vine 2 releases, Or that half a youth pastor's work week should be making YouTube content. And yes, those are actual suggestions that I've heard people seriously make. Being optimistic about new technology and media is not a bad thing. But when that optimism gets embraced uncritically and the mediums that are in question get adopted uncritically, the only thing that's left for you to critically examine is the content that you make for those mediums. Which leads us to our second conclusion. The second big conclusion that I want to make today is that American evangelicalism has wrongly placed the emphasis for being the church in the world, being in the world and not of it, on the basis of the content it creates and consumes and not on how it uses these mediums. 
Because American evangelicalism has held this unchecked, technologically optimistic response to modern technology and media, I think it's worth examining how that response plays out. And and I think it's easy to say that American evangelicalism's focus ever since television and the Internet came into view was on creating alternative countercultural content within those mediums that we uncritically adopted rather than creating countercultural medium engagement practices. I'm a 90s kid. I lived in the golden era of Saturday morning cartoons, Kids WB and eventually Fox Kids and eventually the awful for Kids TV were the centerpieces of my Saturday morning routine and ritual. Whether it was Pokemon or Teen Titans or One Piece or any of the other dozens of cartoons available, my childhood was defined by television entertainment. But being raised in a Christian home with Christian parents, we also had other things we could watch if we wanted to. And if your upbringing is similar to mine, you know what those other shows were. You could watch Batman, the animated series, or you could watch Bible Man, the Christian version of Batman. And if you watched these shows like I did, it wasn't because they were good, but it was because watching these shows made you different. It was countercultural. It made you stand out from your non-Christian friends, even though you watched as much television as they did, even though you used the internet as much as they did, even though... Content notwithstanding, there wasn't anything different at all as to how you used these mediums. I don't want to digress too deeply into the entertainment that American evangelicalism put out through television and the internet. Believe me, I could ramble on for hours about that. I only want to point out that because American evangelicalism uncritically embraced television and the internet without hesitation, the emphasis has always been on creating countercultural content rather than creating countercultural media consumption practices. It's the embodiment of this us-versus-them approach to cultural engagement, where we have our content, our movies, our music, our books, our TV shows, trinkets, t-shirts, and they have their content. In later years, this would manifest itself in things like GodTube, the Christian version of YouTube, or Faith Freaks, the very short-lived Christian MySpace, or even, most recently, The Overflow, a Christian version of, I kid you not, Spotify and Apple Music. It's never been a question of how we use the internet. It's always been a question of what we consume on the internet. It's never been a question as to how we watch television or even how much television we watch. It's always been a question as to what is watched on television. Only very recently has the question shifted from what is on our phones to how we use our phones. And with that question, how we use social media as well. And what we consumed, what we watched, and what we listened to, if not explicitly tied to evangelistic ends, was at the very least meant to be a signal indicating to those around us that we are not of this world. Even if the ultimate source and inspiration for whatever it is that we consume came from this world. This is especially true in the music realm. So long as we consumed content that expressed or displayed our faith, it didn't matter if the way we used those mediums were uncritically identical to the rest of the world. 
Now, I'm not trying to suggest that creating content that reflects the Christian worldview is a bad thing. Obviously, as a podcaster, I don't believe that at all. Nor am I trying to suggest that it doesn't matter what kind of content we consume and that it doesn't affect us and that Christians shouldn't be discerning as to what we watch or listen to. Of course we should. We absolutely should. The point that I'm trying to make is that Whenever new technology and media arise, the response of unchecked technological optimism nullified the need to consider how we use and consume new technology and media and instead became a matter of what we consumed. And it became a matter of filling that medium with Christian content that mirrors or rivals non-Christian content. And this Christian content has an end towards evangelism or signaling your commitment to your faith. Consuming Christian content became just another option as consuming non-Christian content. If consuming Christian content brought you joy and happiness, well then consume it. If consuming non-Christian content brings you happiness and joy, then consume it. And this ultimately leads to my third conclusion, and this is the big one. Because of this unchecked technological optimism... And this misplaced emphasis on creating Christian content, changes in technology and media, namely television and the internet for this episode's sake, open the door for secularism to gain a greater influence in the church than it had ever had before. So first, let's start with secularism. I can't vouch for the other definitions of secularism you might be familiar with, but for this podcast, when I say secularism, I mean two specific things. First, by secularism, I mean a state of mind where all belief systems are plausible, equally valid options for living a happy and meaningful life. The second thing I mean when I say secularism is The idea of transcendence becomes less believable, less possible or plausible or meaningful. In secularism, belief systems, whether yours is Christianity, Islam, atheism, pastafarianism, these belief systems aren't evaluated based on their truthfulness, but on whether or not your expression of your belief system helps you live a full life. And if you think that this is something that only a non-Christian could hold to, this is a view that Christians can absolutely hold to. Christians are just as much influenced by this way of thinking as a non-Christian can be. As a result of this, the idea of transcendence or the idea that there are things that go above and beyond the physical world we inhabit becomes not necessarily false, but just unnecessary. There is no need to know your creator who exists outside of you and apart from the physical world that you know, if the life that you've chosen to live brings you joy and happiness and so long as your neighbor is choosing to live their lives around beliefs that bring them satisfaction and isn't causing trouble for others who are pursuing the good life in other ways. After all, how do we know that what we believe is really correct? Who's to say that our beliefs are any better than someone else's beliefs? Secularism takes any kind of truth claim that would stand over all of us, such as the claim that I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, and flattens out its claim to exclusivity in order to bring it into a realm where it could be wrong or could be just as important or significant as any other belief, including beliefs that contradict those claims. 
Now, secularism existed long before television and the internet. And I'm not trying to suggest that the church was impervious to this kind of thinking before television sets began appearing in believers' homes. What I am trying to say here is that these changes in technology and media, and specifically television and the internet, have empowered secularism's influence in the church by giving it tools that reinforce a secular way of thinking. Secularism is ultimately rooted in individualism, and individualism is strengthened by technology that makes practicing individualism easier to do. Recall at the end of the fifth episode, when we landed on televised religion, and specifically televised Christianity, changing the way we conceive of Christianity because we now have the option to participate in the Christian life, including Sunday morning worship, apart from having to physically be present with the embodied people of God. A secular way of thinking doesn't see a difference between watching a sermon at home or physically going to church to be with other believers. But this kind of thinking wasn't really possible before television because before television, the idea of staying at home to watch a sermon didn't exist. As Neil Postman explains in Amusing Ourselves to Death, The television screen itself has a strong bias towards a psychology of secularism. The screen is so saturated with our memories of profane events, so deeply associated with the commercial and entertainment worlds, that it is difficult for it to be recreated as a frame for sacred events. Among other things, the viewer is at all times aware that a flick of the switch will produce a different secular event on the screen, a hockey game, a commercial, a cartoon. Not only that, But both prior to and immediately following most religious programs, there are commercials, promos for popular shows, and a variety of other secular images and discourses so that the main message of the screen itself is a continual promise of entertainment. Both the history and the ever-present possibilities of the television screen work against the idea that introspection or spiritual transcendence is desirable in its presence. The television screen wants you to remember that its imagery is always available for your amusement and pleasure. Likewise, as we talked about the internet in the previous episode, the internet took this individually experienced Christianity and gave it something that televised Christianity lacked. The ability to form communities apart from any geographical constraint and all without having to leave your house. A secular way of thinking doesn't see a difference between a physically gathered church and a digitally gathered group of believers. Because before the internet, the idea of being able to forge relationships with people all over the world with relatively minimal commitment wasn't possible. With both television and the internet, the individual was empowered for the first time in history to choose a Christianity that fit their lifestyle, their preference, and their convenience as to how they wanted to experience it. And so long as this gave them meaning and happiness, who was to say that they were wrong to pick the Christianity that best fit them? In talking about how technology and media have shaped the way we think about God, it's impossible to avoid talking about how modern changes in technology and media have reinforced the idea that thinking about God is not any inherently better than not thinking about Him. It has also reinforced the notion of a closed-off physical world where every phenomenon we experience, including religious experiences, have physical, 
proximate natural explanations. And the need to appeal to God as an explanation for anything becomes unnecessary because there's a more immediate explanation close by that can help us make sense of what we are experiencing. This is known by Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor as the buffered self, an individual who has insulated themselves in their individualism from anything that exists outside themselves, including the transcendent realm. Television and the internet began to give individuals the ability to further insulate themselves from any external influence by empowering them with technology that not only gives them the ability to act on their individualism, but also distracts them from needing to consider the possibility that maybe there is a God that exists outside themselves. And maybe this God doesn't see the world the way you do. Alan Noble, in his very recent and very good book, Disruptive Witness, explains that Our pervasive culture of technological distraction dramatically exacerbates the effects of buffered self, which in turn feeds the demand for technology of distraction. It is not a coincidence that these two forces have arisen at this point in history. The rise of secularism has inspired a view of technology and fullness rooted thoroughly in this life and established and chosen inwardly, which, I believe, has helped to justify the creation and adoption of technologies that are not directed toward human flourishing, but instead helping us project our identity and remain distracted. Outside of a culture of virtue grounded in an external source, science, technology, and the market have been driven to produce a society that prioritizes the sovereign individual. The modern person experiences a buffer between themselves and the world out there, including transcendent ideas and truths. The constant distraction of our culture shields us from the kind of deep, honest reflection needed to ask why we exist and what is true. To link this all back to our first two conclusions made earlier in this episode, when American evangelicalism responded to these new technological forces with unchecked optimism, they allowed themselves to be open to the influence of secularism, even if their initial motives for adopting these new mediums were entirely attached to religious reasons. The problem with adopting television as a medium for preaching the gospel is that you can't just isolate your adoption of television for that singular reason. You either adopt everything that television brings as a medium, including its psychology of secularism, or you don't adopt television at all. The same is true for the internet. It's impossible to adopt the internet for the use of spreading the gospel and making Christian materials more readily available without adopting the option of experiencing Christian community without committing to a physical church. It's a package deal. And to link this to the second conclusion, if this secular way of thinking is empowered by modern technology and media, and if Christianity is flattened out to being one possible belief amid a myriad of others, then focusing solely on Christian content only reinforces that message, and it reduces your message to being an expression of your preference. Christianity. Your collection of Christian t-shirts, movies, music, and books becomes signals by which you express your faith, and those expressions of faith are not proclamations of a gospel that calls all men and women everywhere to repent and believe in Jesus Christ, but simply expressions of how important your faith is to you, 
And it's no different than expressions of belief from anyone else. You might mean it that way, but that's not how your neighbor takes it to be. What sets us apart is not the content we consume as Christians, but how we even approach these mediums at all. If the habits surrounding our television, smartphone, internet, and social media usage are identical to our non-Christian neighbors, does anything actually set us apart and show that we are different? Consuming different content isn't enough. Approaching these mediums themselves differently is. Now, I do want to give some credit to actual technological optimism, not unchecked, technological optimism, but legitimately healthy technological optimism. The creeping secular influence into American evangelicalism was occurring long before television and the internet came about, and it would have continued on without them, even if it was at a slower pace. And even if American evangelicals had decided to not adopt television and the internet in the ways that it did, it wouldn't have changed the fact that their neighbors and co-workers would have, and evangelicals would still have to deal with the obstacles of secularism in living as Christians in their communities. The writing was on the wall for this trajectory. American evangelicals were just willing to pick up the chalk and write along with everybody else. But if this is the way the culture was already going to go, and if there was no way to stop that tide from turning, why not try to take advantage of that in any way that you could? If secularism was already on its way to reducing Christianity to being one possible belief option amid a mass of other equally viable beliefs because of this new technology and media, why not jump into these mediums that reinforce that thinking and try to influence things from the inside? While I think the reasoning behind the wholesale adoption of television and the internet was on sincere but misguided theological groundings, I am sympathetic towards the idea that if this cultural change was going to happen regardless, then you might as well make the most of it. To use a military analogy here, if you know the army marching towards you can wipe you out, regardless of whether or not you put up a fight... Why not go and try to surrender or negotiate a peace agreement? Even if you come out as captives, at least you're still alive. Where technological optimism conceded too much in adopting television and the internet, if technological pessimism were the majority response, American evangelicals might have overlooked legitimate opportunities in these mediums, especially in the internet. It's a complex situation, and despite my criticisms of unchecked technological optimism in this episode, I don't believe that technological pessimism may have been the best response either. If we believe what the Bible teaches about the sovereignty of God being over all things, including the technology and media of our present day, then why not dive in head first, knowing that God is going to use these flawed and imperfect mediums to build his kingdom? Why should we take a cautionary approach based off of what we can perceive in our limited human understanding of how these things work and get involved in the mess of the world? knowing that Jesus Christ descended from heaven into our mess in order to bring us salvation. These are questions I regularly ask myself in wrestling with the technology and the media I consume every day, and this is ultimately what this podcast is about, asking these kind of questions and thinking through them and wrestling with their implications. 
I think American evangelicalism is starting to ask more and more of these questions about the technology and media in our lives, and I am very thankful for that. There is a deep cultural unrest about the impact our phones and social media have on our lives. And if American evangelicals were to collectively wrestle through those implications, maybe there's the opportunity to offer the world the hope of the gospel in ways that are truly, actually, radically different from the way the world uses these mediums. Because we're not just consuming different content, we're using everything the world uses in completely different ways that reflect our convictions. Personally, my concern is not whether or not you come to the same conclusions that I do after wrestling with these questions, but whether or not you wrestle with these questions at all. If I can convince you of what Neil Postman believed at the end of his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, that to ask is to break the spell, then I have done my job. Secularism is going to play a more prominent theme in coming episodes as we start discussing smartphones, social media, and the future of technology and media. But on the next episode of Breaking the Digital Spell, we're going to briefly pause about all our talk about new mediums and look at the machines that make these new mediums possible. Breaking the Digital Spell is a podcast made possible because of my very good friend, Andrew Akins. He has taken time out of his schedule week after week to polish these episodes up and write original music beds for them because he believes in this podcast and because he wants to give his talents to help make it possible. And so if you enjoy this podcast, it's really because of him. He's the one who really makes this all possible. This podcast also wouldn't be possible without my wife, Melissa, who not only reads these quotes for me, but also is my sounding board for all of these ideas that I have rambling through my head that I have to get on paper and into a microphone somehow. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can like our Facebook page and follow the show on Twitter at Digital Spell, where I'll be posting articles and other writings relevant to each episode throughout the week. And wherever you're listening to this, please consider subscribing and leaving a review and sharing it on social media. That would really mean a lot to me. My name is Austin, and together we are breaking the digital spell. <laughs>